Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. This morning, studying verses 1 through 5, found on page 974 of the Black Pew Bible. Galatians chapter 6, page 974, reminding you that as we come to the book of Galatians, these are churches in the region of Galatia that Paul had founded as the church planter, had left. Judaizers or legalists, false teachers had come in preaching a different gospel, justification by faith plus works and not just faith alone. And Paul has been laboring in the first five chapters to argue for the doctrine of justification by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. As we come to the end of five, the beginning of six, Paul is really beginning to apply that gospel. So let's read Galatians chapter six and verse one. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load Do you want to grow? Do you want to grow? I don't mean in your waistline or in your bank account or anything silly like that. I mean spiritually, do you want to grow? That's what Paul is on about in this section of the letter. Famously, he's given us the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23, contrasted with the works of the flesh in verses 19 through 21. The works of the flesh, you know, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rage, a miserable list of things that come all too naturally, the weeds that grow in your garden contrasted with delicious, ripe fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, And the question that ought to follow is, okay, I see the contrast, Paul, but how do I become a person that grows the fruit rather than works the flesh? Last Sunday evening, we studied verses 24 through 26 of chapter 5. said Paul gives us three steps there in our belonging and in our warring and in our walking. You grow in the Christian life by belonging to Christ warring against the flesh, and walking by the Spirit. Now, as we come to chapter 6, you know, the the chapter divisions are a later addition. They're a bit artificial. Paul, his logic, I think, continues right on. He's still concerned about how to grow. In chapter 6, verse 1 to 5, I think he first shows us the context of this growth. The context of this growth that comes with a call in that context and a warning for that context. Of course, the 
The context of the growth is the church. That'll be our first point. And once we've seen that indeed the church is the context for Christian growth, no surprise, we'll see the call of that context are restoring and bearing one another's burdens. And then thirdly, the warning Paul gives to those of us who dare to pick up that work and that call in that context so that we as a church might be as we ought to be, a, a context for spiritual growth. And indeed, in our growth, knowing and loving Christ all the more. You know, okra does not grow where I'm from. I had never heard even of the greatest of the fried vegetables. It's become one of my favorite things. I had never had fresh mango or avocado either until I had gone to college. Uh, but of course, you know, moving here, um, I don't think you all grow the best apples, or perhaps maple syrup isn't a real product of the, of the South, and I'm thankful for where I come from, where those things are plentiful and easy to grow. That is to say that context matters in our growth. You know, children need a mother and a father in their home to grow rightly. Uh, live oak trees don't grow where I'm from. Indeed, some some plants need a greenhouse in which to grow. Some babies need an incubator. But all Christians need a church for growth. The church is the context for growth. And you can forgive me if I'm stating the obvious. It indeed is, an, I think, an obvious assumption of the Apostle Paul in verses 1 to 5. The brothers he's speaking to, uh, the you who are caught in transgression, the you who are spiritual, uh, the, the one another's in verse 2, the assumed context, the presumed area is not uh, the neighborhood or the city or even necessarily the family, but is indeed Paul writing to the churches. He's writing to the churches of Asia Minor, South Central Asia Minor, the region of Galatia. Uh, Paul himself, he, he's not given his life to just a kind of general evangelism. He, he's not just an itinerant preacher. He is a church planter. He has given his life to planting churches. And indeed, he's not just writing good Christian literature as he writes the New Testament. No, he's writing to churches and to pastors. Paul's assumed position is that, of course, the church is the context for Christian growth. Uh, and I fully admit and embrace the idea that uh, ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church may be the, the hobby horse of our ministerial staff, Dr. Johnson, Reverend Gear, and I. I think we all see the same thing about evangelicalism or American Christianity in general. We would say there's a, a lack of emphasis on the centrality of the church. And of course, you, know, you all are in church on Sunday morning. Perhaps I'm preaching to the choir, but you know, maybe you can tell your neighbors and friends who, who inevitably live around you and claim some kind of love for God, knowledge of Christ, and yet have no vibrant connection to a local church. In his book with Ted Cluck, Why We Love the Church, Kevin DeYoung introduces the argument for why you should love the church by pointing it out just how silly it is theologically to claim Christ but not His church. He points to 1 Corinthians 3 where the Apostle Paul says that Christ is the foundation of His church. And he points out that no one loves just the foundation. 
Or no one loves, you know, basically what, what is an open basement without the building? No, you, you love the building that's based in the foundation. It would be nonsensical to only love the foundation but not the building on top of it. Or he points to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, where Paul says that Christ is the head of his body, the church. He says, no one loves a decorporealized head or a head, uh, a bodiless head. It's a rather morose image to imagine that you could love the head without the body. Or he points to Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul memorably says that the church is the bride of Christ. And there, there's no good friendship with the groom if you despise his bride. You know, there's, there's no coming over to watch football at my house and saying something disparaging of my wife. You don't have to find the door. I'll show you to the door. Such is the nature of loving the groom but not the bride. Indeed, the young sums it up. Plenty of your neighbors claim to love open basements, bad marriages, and decorporulation. We claim Christ, but not His church. And, and perhaps this is fresh in my mind. We, we've just had our fifth baby, uh, and my wife, it was a high-risk pregnancy, so she had to give blood, you know, every week. And so she spent a lot of time in waiting rooms and in doctor's offices, and she's very warm and conversant. And she's, you know, a little uh, wonderful evangelist, and she strikes up spiritual conversation very easily. And, of course, it's the South, so everybody she spoke to, you know, she would ask them, you know, where they went to church, and inevitably, she would say, you know, and almost every conversation would be someone who claimed a love for God, a, a private spirituality, to share even what they read in the Bible that, that morning, to have grown up in the church, but to not have a church today. It was true of the receptionists, the people in the waiting rooms, the techs, the nurses, and the doctors. And that's anecdotally true for me as well, even with my Christian college friends who uh, grew up in the church, were serious enough to seek out a Christian college to go to, and yet have recently have no church home to call their own. Or I, I'm struck by it every time I watch college football, and those guys run out of the tunnel, and they run to the opposite end zone, and they, they take a knee and pray like, you know, over half the team. And then if you know anything about the reality of the culture inside those teams and what happens after games, it's, well, it's a rather stark difference. And indeed, I was even taught in the evangelism training of my little Baptist church, you don't ask someone uh, about where they go to church, you ask someone about their personal relationship with Jesus. And indeed, that might be a helpful conversant tool. And yet, the assumption it's built on is flawed. The idea that you might have a walk with Christ apart from a deep membership in His church, a local body of His own, is a non sequitur. You know, Christians are not air plants. You can't just set them up around your house and spritz some water on them every once in a while. No, Christians need the regular watering of encouragement. They need the, the gardeners to come around and to fertilize and prune and to weed around them. Further, and I hope this is obvious, it takes more than one hour a week for all that horticulture to happen in the Christian's life. This is why we as a church you know, plant our flag on the Sabbath day and not the Sabbath hour. It is indeed good to come for an hour on Sunday morning, but we put a lot of effort and resources into uh, not only Sunday morning, but Sunday school and Sunday evening and the, serve and, and the meal afterwards. 
and our youth Bible studies and our college Bible studies and our career Bible studies and our men's and women's prayer meetings and Bible studies and throughout the week all kinds of organic activities to come to and be involved in because we knew that to grow as a Christian, to be strong, takes a vital connection to Christ and His church. Spiritual fruit, you see, cannot grow in a vacuum, and the context for the growth is the church. That's our first point. But what we see in verses 1 and 2 is a call of that context. In verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spiritual a spirit of gentleness. That is, the first call is to restoring one another, restoration. And the second is there in verse 2. He says, bear one another's burdens. That's the second call. The first restoring, the second bearing will take the first there in verse 1. If anyone is caught in transgression, and I'm so happy our children are memorizing the children's catechism, know what a transgression is. It's doing what God forbids. Well, what do you mean? Well, what's an example? Well, how about like having other gods before Him? How about making graven images, having ideas even in our head of what God looks like or is like even subtracted from the Scriptures? How about like taking the, name's Lord, the Lord's name in vain, treating His name as if it was vanity or nothingness? Or how about not remembering the Sabbath day but forgetting the Sabbath day altogether? How about doing what the Lord forbids, like dishonoring your father and mother, like murdering, like committing adultery, like stealing, like bearing false witness, like coveting, doing what God forbids. And it says, those who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, who are those who are spiritual among us? Well, I hope that if you're in church, and if you're a member of this church, you've been tested for your awakeness, aliveness spiritually, and that indeed all of us ought to be at least spiritual in one way or another. And yet we know, even as we were here together last week and we ordained and installed elders and deacons, that the especially spiritual among us ought to be our elders. And I, I do think Paul has in mind here in his peripheral vision uh, formal, public church discipline. But he, he does not go necessarily the route of Matthew 18, I guess perhaps in his peripheral vision, but I think what more directly he's talking about is what I would call informal and organic church discipline. By that I mean all the organic, interpersonal conversations that happen in and around the church. Hey, I haven't seen you a while in church. Are you okay? Or, hey, you and your wife seem, you know, rather cold. Are you, are you all doing all right? Or, uh, you know, the answer you gave to your mother was rather sharp. Is everything Okay. All those kinds of conversations are indeed informal or informal organic church discipline. They are gentle, uh, they're, they're non-accusatory, they're the kind of conversations that Christians ought to be observing and having with one another. I think Paul assumes it here in verse 1. And, and perhaps you're thinking, as I, as I push you in this direction of having intentional spiritual conversations confronting one another in sin, well, that's a rather awkward thing. And I, number two, I don't really know anyone here quite well enough, I think, to do that kind of thing. And thirdly, you know, who am I really to be pointing people's sin out? Let's be honest. Well, let's take the, break each part of that, you know. Second, you know, you mentioned uh, 
perhaps you don't know anyone well enough here to be able to confront them in their sin. If, if that's the case, then perhaps shame on you. This is the expectation of Paul, that we know each other well enough to be able to observe and have gentle conversations about sin in each other's lives. Or perhaps number one, and number one is the more uh, I'm more worried about, or, or the, the third thing that perhaps you're not the person who could confront on this, that, that's valid, that'll come in our third point in our warning, but that, that first concern, that it's, it's a bit awkward perhaps to confront one another. And indeed, this might be again perhaps shame on you. Uh, you are no friend of the person. If you see the skin cancer, the malignant melanoma on your hand, you know that's an oddly shaped mole, and they don't know, and you don't ask them about it or seek to help them anyway. Indeed, you're no friend of the person whose sin you see, and you do nothing to help them. The one with the undiagnosed or treated melanoma might die of that cancer. The one with the undiagnosed or untreated sin might die forever. How much must you hate your brother and sister in Christ to allow hell-deserving sin to go unchecked in their life? We indeed do practice formal church discipline in this church, a very unpopular thing in the modern world. And yet I do think that there is little more important work to be done in all the world. Paul's instruction to the brothers, chapter 6, verse 1, is restoring one another in gentleness from our transgression. That's the first call of the context. And the second call is there in verse 2, bear one another's burdens. And uh, judging by the context, I, I don't think Paul has only our physical burdens in mind. Certainly we should be helping the, the widow with finances perhaps or getting the elderly to their doctor's appointments, no doubt. But judging by the context of spiritual growth and spiritual fruit, I think Paul is hinting at spiritual burdens we need to help one another bear. Indeed, even praying for one another in our, in our battles against indwelling sin, encouraging one another in our, in our warfare against the flesh and the devil. Indeed, praying with and for one another and our prodigal children, our wandering wives or our distant husbands. I do think that spiritual burden bearing is what Paul has in mind here. And, and to do this kind of thing, you have to get close to someone to do it. You know, uh, in football, you, gotta, you spend a lot of time in the weight room, and one of the big football exercises is squatting. You have the bar across your back, and you do a lot of weight. And the danger with squatting is that if you fail while you're, you're squatting the weight, you know, you could basically die if it comes down and hits you. And so you're always squatting when you have heavy weight. Somebody there to hold you up under the burden which you're bearing. And to do that, you have to get real close to someone. You have to basically be in their shoes to help them lift the weight. Dr. Timothy Keller points out that that's very much the way that spiritual burden bearing is also. To help someone bear their spiritual burden, you have to get close enough to basically be in their shoes. But all this doesn't happen on accident. And Paul further instructs in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So important is this spiritual burden bearing for one another in the church that he stamps it with the law of your Lord, the law of your Savior, the law of Christ, the one who saved you, whose spirit indwells you. It's his law. It's what he mentioned up in chapter 5 and verse 14, loving your neighbor as yourself. And then it's fascinating, verse 3, the way Paul anticipates our, our awkwardness, our, our pushback. He hears our cynicism, and he, I think, confronts the top reason 
why we aren't involved at a spiritual level with other Christians, restoring and bearing with them. The reason you don't restore and bear closely with other Christians, Paul says in verse 3, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he's deceived. Paul says, you cynics, you're like the Pharisee and the scribe in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Every Sunday we come to church, there are people here who are beaten down and along the side of the road, and we so easily scuttle by on our more important things to do. We do not slow down to care for one another in the ditch, beaten, beaten up, bruised, in need, desperate need of discouragement. If we have more important things to do, Paul says, the problem is you think you're something when you're really you're nothing. Verse 3, indeed, is a call to humility, a call to the way of Christ, the law of Christ, as we walk with the Spirit of Christ, as he told us up in verse 24, verse 25. We have to see the, the context for our growth and the call of that context, restoring and bearing burdens with one another. And all that, of course, comes with a, a warning. And, and Paul, if you're reading along, has, has skillfully woven serious warnings all through this passage. Look back at chapter 6, verse 1. He says, you know, you are spiritual to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But then he warns us, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And in verses 2 and 3, he's saying, bear one another's burdens. You know, unless you think you're something, you're really nothing. And then verses 4 and 5, he warns us again. Look there at verse 4 and 5. He says, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. What Paul is saying here is what Jesus said so memorably in his parable of the log in the eye. Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, Jesus says, you know, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, well, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, lest we ever think that this gives us an excuse to not be helping our brothers with specks, not to be bearing with them even in their smaller burdens, the whole point of dealing with logs is to help with specks. And no way takes us, you know, wondering if, if we're the one to help, no, one, no way takes us off the hook. And perhaps you notice the uh, this apparent contradiction between verse 3 and 4. In verse 3, Paul assumes Christians know that he is nothing. And in verse 4, he seems to be calling us or counseling us to, to boast in our own work. And if you know any more about this passage, he gets down to chapter 6 and verse 14, where he swears of all boasting except for the Christ of Christ our Lord. Uh, so, well, Paul, which is it? Are we supposed to think we're nothing, or are we supposed to be boasting in our own works? When you say later on that we shouldn't be boasting except for the cross of Christ. Are we supposed to be humble or proud? And you know, if you, if you follow Paul throughout the New Testament, you know this is a paradox that really follows him throughout his whole ministry. He's always saying stuff like that he's the chief of sinners, uh, the least worthy of all the apostles, one untimely born and all that. And yet, of course, he also says things like, follow me as I follow Christ. And he also takes the prerogative of, of writing uh, with specific instruction to uh, most of the New Testament churches. Indeed, 
This is something Paul is always developing. It, it, you know, is he schizophrenic or something? Which is it, Paul? Someone explain to me Paul's psychological state. Are we supposed to be humble or proud? Well, of course, always humble. And of course, never proud. And yet, as we see in Paul, there is a strength, a confidence, a security that comes with a clear conscience, that comes with Christian growth. I think the most helpful way to think about it is that the order of our understanding is important in our humility and our pride, or our humility and our boasting. You ought to be never confident, secure, strong, based upon our own works, our own religiosity, our own moral law-keeping. That's what Paul's been saying the whole of the letter. We're not justified by your resume. No, we ought always to be humble before the cross of Christ. Indeed, we build our life upon the foundation of Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His righteousness on our behalf. And it is, it is it's the point of this foundation, this order that sets us up upon Christ that allows us to grow out something to which to commend ourselves for, something that we might boast or, I think more helpfully, bear testimony of what God has done in our lives. We're, we're never growing apart from this foundation of our humility, of who we are in Christ. No, foundationally unworthy, foundationally a worm or a wretch, as the Scriptures call us, from Him, in Christ, we become indeed the bride of Christ, sons of the Most High God. And it allows this, this paradox of the Christian life that allows us to be gentle and humble. Those who are spiritual know the truth about themselves, never looking down our noses upon anyone else, foundationally spiritual-minded, and yet also have the strength, the insight, the will, the security to be able to confront in gentleness our brothers and sisters in sin and to restore them. In verse 5, Paul makes clear his final warning for each will have to bear his own load. That is, each will be held accountable for their own lives. Uh, there's no contradiction here, of course. We can both be uh, bearing our own loads and helping our brothers bear their burdens. And perhaps this is the most obvious things. We have to deal with our logs first. You know, what pastor can counsel on marriage whose own marriage is a mess? Or who can give parenting advice when their own children are far from the Lord? Or who can give spiritual counsel when they're diverting from the truth on their own? No, the logs must be dealt with. This is Paul's point. You might need to sit this one out. The logs must be dealt with before the specks can be helped. This is how spiritual growth happens. In the context of the church, with the call within the church to restore and bear burdens, those who are spiritual help, those who are spiritual lead, those who are spiritual prune and shape and fertilize and water so that growth takes place. The fruit of the Spirit, you see, are are meant to be fostered within the greenhouse of the church. Not the therapist, not the self-help book, not the pharmaceuticals, but life on life in the fellowship of the church. Being such a church is a high and costly calling. It takes a lot of investment of your time and energy and money to make such a church possible. 
And it is the instruction of the Apostle Paul to the Galatian churches to be a church like this that bears one of those close enough to bear the burden together. Such Christ does for us and such we ought to do for one another as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, I pray that we might move towards one another in love. That indeed we would heed the warnings. That we would be men and women of integrity who are continually dealing with the logs in our eyes, repenting of our own sin, of our own pride, that we might help one another grow in humility and in Christ-likeness. He who is the servant who shows us the way to life. We ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen.